Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and good morning. We hope your hangovers are manageable, amongst English listeners at least. It is an historic day. Football has indeed come home and at a reasonable hour, with England's electrifying 2-1 victory over Germany in the Women's Euros last night. The country was shocked at scenes of drunken violence not happening across the country. What can the difference possibly be? I'm Andrew Harrison. We're going to be talking about that and the events of the week in a minute. But first... A small something for your attention. We are launching a survey of our listeners to find out what you like and dislike about the podcast. And you can fill it in right now. There's a link in the show notes. So why not complete it while you're listening? Tell us what you think and you'll be in the running to win a bunker t-shirt. Right then, here to guide us through the week ahead is former BBC journalist, now Chancellor of the University of Kent, Gavin Esler. Good morning, Gavin. Good morning, and it is a very good morning for reasons you've just explained, isn't it? It is a very good morning. Have you, did you shout yourself hoarse? I, I did a bit, and I should say, you know, as somebody who is male and who uh, is Scottish and who frankly was a bit jaded about football for various reasons, some of this trouble off the pitch and so on, I loved it. It restored my faith in the great, beautiful game. And the standard of play was amazing. I just loved it. I believe you had eyewitnesses at the game. Yeah, two of my daughters uh, and my son were at the game. And, you know, I have to say, when when your children go to, to a big football match with 90,000 other people, when you know what's happened at other stadiums, sometimes the fault of a few fans, sometimes the fault of, as we've seen in Paris recently, other people, not the fans, you're a bit worried. I was not worried. What a great atmosphere. And I'll tell, tell you one of the reasons I wasn't worried. When I, I lived in America for a long time and used to go and watch uh, football, or as they say, soccer, when the international teams came and played in Washington, D.C. And the crowd was always half women because women women play football very much in the United States, as you, as you know. And the rest, of the, te- the rest of the people watching were either Europeans or they were um, uh, Latin Americans, uh, tended to be. And the atmosphere was great because it was mostly women or at least half women. And this has changed the atmosphere in the grounds. It's changed the way I look at football. And I think many men look at football. I'm so pleased. Yeah. I mean, it, and also it was a proper blood and guts game as well. A bit, you know, Germany quite dirty, played at a pace of their lives depend on it. Best England-Germany game I've seen in, in years. And the fact that it didn't have that sort of almost soulless, super mega elite polish that the men's game can have at Premier League level and also that caginess that international football has in the men's game too made it more exciting. It was like you really saw them dig in. And you know, I think my memories will be like Mary Epps and goal, just an incredible game, an incredible game face. But also Jill Scott giving Sidney Lohman a real proper talking to, a real proper 
wet Wednesday night talking to after being on the wrong end of a foul to the extent that the BBC had to apologise to lip readers. This is what we want from football. That and just the pure joy of, of, of all the girls in, the, in, in a, what was a record crowd. I mean, Gavin, all the talk this morning is that it's like a game changer. Women's football is going to move up a gear, going to become more central to talk about the game, but also more central to coverage. Do you think that's going to happen? I, I think it will, actually. And I, I, You didn't mention Lucy Bronze, who I thought was amazing. Mm. What a player. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, we could, we could talk about what was on the pitch, but I think you're right. What's off the pitch? The most important thing is whether girls all over the United Kingdom think this is the game for me uh, and why shouldn't it be? And the second thing is, will the FA begin to wake up and actually change some of the ways in which it's structured so that more and more people will actually go to the games and be in the stadiums? I mean, it's one thing to watch it like I did on TV, but my kids watching it in in the real, I mean, I, I can't tell you how high they were when they came out and excited about it. And also, maybe, just maybe, those of us who are male spectators might just wake up and think, you know, booing the other team's national anthem and those kind of things, that's not really a very good look. Maybe we should just kind of calm down and learn a little bit, even as spectators. So there's a lot of things that I think might change. Whether the money changes, I mean, the money follows the TV rights, doesn't it, essentially? And the TV rights are presumably, for for the next few years at least, going to be in the men's game. But if you're a boss of a TV company, you're going to think there's an audience for this. How can I get that audience? So I think that will change, but slowly, perhaps. Well, yeah, I mean, at the basic level of what would you rather watch? A game like that where both sides are going for it, absolutely without quarter, incredibly exciting, or another sort of cagey uh, attempt at a draw? I I would much rather watch last night's game. Yeah, me too. I mean, in post-match interviews, uh, lots of big figures from uh, women's football, like Alex Scott, didn't hold back. They were very clear. It's like, you know, the lack of funding and backing have held this game back. Now it's time for football and every, everyone around football to put up and to, and to deliver. Do you think that change is, is going to happen? Will we see women's football more central to television schedules? That is one of the big keys. I mean, the whole, the whole thing is access, isn't it? And, and access mm. comes with... Is this exciting? And because of the brilliant way in which the England team performs. So I think it will, I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic about this. I think it may be different in other countries. I mean, I was, I was looking at some of the coverage in Germany and people were suggesting that it wasn't so exciting there. But then, then, you know, it wasn't played in Hamburg or Berlin or Munich. It was played in, in London. So maybe, maybe it, it, it depends on what happens in other countries as well. But I certainly think English football and therefore also football in Scotland, I suspect, and, and, and other parts of the United Kingdom will be on a big high today. There's a great moment on the BBC coverage. Uh, Gabo Yarath uh, finished, signed off by saying they think it's all over. It hasn't even started yet. I, I, I got, you know, chills. Not the only time there were, there were chills in the course of that day. How glad are you, though, Gavin, that Boris Johnson wasn't there trying to grab, grab the glory and throw himself into the crowd? <laughs> yeah, gosh. Yeah, I have to say that was that was one of, one, of, one of the best things that happened. Nor did we have the culture secretary saying it's great to be here at a football court. Although she was she was hanging around with ginger spice, which which made my head spin. Jerry Halliwell jumping all over Nadine Dorries. Yeah, I mean that, that that there are politics that we need to talk about, but this, this is not a time for for politics. As I say, 
I am a Scottish person who wrote once a few years ago about the England football team. I'd be perfectly happy to, I'm talking about the men's team, I'd be perfectly happy to support them since Scotland have again not qualified for some championship. I can't tell you what, <laughs> I can't tell you about the reaction from some of my readers in the, the Scotsman newspaper when I did that. So I think, I think many people in Scotland too would have been cheering on this England team. Well, I have brought the mood down by mentioning the Conservatives. Uh, the leadership campaign continues to stagger on. But this week, there's a very uh, worrying, increasing sense that Boris Johnson's resignation honours won't just be the self-serving, back-scratching thing we'd expect, uh, paying off the likes of Paul Dacre with a peerage, but actually anti-democratic. Over the weekend, Gordon Brown wrote in The Guardian that he'd seen a document by Johnson's advisor, Linton Crosby, setting out a plan for up to 30 new Tory peers and that each of them would have to sign away their right to make up their own minds on legislation that comes before them in the Lords. Gavin, what do you think about this? I mean, we've learned to never say never with Johnson. Could this happen? Yes, it could happen. And not only could it happen, we have created a system which allows it to happen. It seems to me the scandal in British politics isn't isn't that Boris Johnson behaves like a charlatan and he breaks uh, what are norms of our unwritten constitution, uncodified constitution, I should say, because we do have it written down in various places. It's not that. The scandal is that we allow this to happen. We tolerate this. When House of Lords reform took place a few years ago under the Labour government, it was suggested that there would never be more than 600 members of the House of Lords, which seemed to me far too many anyway. There's now more mm-hmm. than 800 members of the House of Lords. And actually, I looked at it, I, look, I was looking it up for something else recently. There is no limit. You know, we could, he, Boris Johnson could make a million new peers or two million. Maybe all of us should be members of the House of Lords. Maybe that would sort out, sort out. I, I can, I, <laughs> would be levelling up. Lord, that would be levelling up, Lord Andrew. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, so the system is nonsense. And uh, Boris Johnson is taking advantage of a system which is full of weaknesses. And we have to sort this out. We, I mean, the people of the United Kingdom. It, it just shows, uh, it shows something about his character. But his character will pass. The question is what we do about it. And the shocking idea that people who are, for instance, uh, the son of an ex-KGB agent who runs a newspaper which supports Boris Johnson's politics and everybody's been okay so far, that, that, that that's somehow just part of the system. You can make him appear. He could be, I have no idea which particular shockers will, will uh, get peerages this time. But the other actually really important point is that if we do not have a functioning upper chamber of the uh, British Parliament where people have some faith in their powers to actually cool down what happens in the lower house, then we have effectively a dictatorship by the House of Commons. And if we have that and a prime minister with an 80-seat majority, we have essentially this notion of the crown in Parliament means what the prime minister says goes. And Boris Johnson knows that. He's not stupid. I don't have very high regard for him as a... As a, as a leader, but he is not stupid. And he knows that he's abused it in the past. He's abused it by, a, you know, the people who look into what he has done, like Chris Geit, are people who have to report to him, and then they quit, or, or, or Sue Gray, you know, so the system is fundamentally flawed. And Johnson has taken advantage of it. And he will end his prime ministership doing the same thing, it seems to me. 
I mean, there's also talk of him making uh, celebrity or controversial ennoblements, as what Crosby calls useful cover from any media backlash. So, you know, put Darren Grimes or Nigel Farage in the laws, watch the fur fly, and then the discussion about whether it's democratic or not and what it's going to do to future legislation just gets gets lost in the row. Do you think it's wrong of Labour to be quiet on this? Um, I mean, there seems to be strong support for reform of the Lords in the country. 71% of the people think it does need reform. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Labour has been too quiet about too many things recently. I, you know, I have great respect for Keir Starmer. He took on a, he took on a very divided party, which is still divided in some ways. Uh, but he, if you can't make something more out of the disaster that has been Boris Johnson's tenure in, a, in a Downing Street, uh, I, I'm a bit disappointed. So I would like him to pump up the volume, frankly. And this is one area. To be fair to to the Labour Party right now, Gordon Brown has got this document. It's possible that the Prime Minister might abandon it and say, no, that's not my intention at all. I'm going to make, you know, Mother Teresa a member of the House of Lords or whoever the equivalent is now. So he has to hold fire a bit. But this is a major issue of massive constitutional importance, not just for the next year or two, but for the next generation. And it has to be sorted. And if Labour doesn't sort it, I can't imagine which Conservative leader is going to sort it because they're benefiting from it. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. While we're in the world of the Conservatives, ballot papers have gone out to the Tory membership and Rishi Sunak this week seems determined to go down with the minimum of dignity. He told supporters in West Sussex, what's the point in stopping the bulldozers in the green belt if we allow left-wing agitators to take a bulldozer to our history, our traditions and our fundamental values? This is not very authentic Sunak, is it? No, it's not. And, uh, that, you know, there's a number of things about this race. It is interesting to hear two members of a Conservative government uh, saying essentially that 12 years of Conservative government were rubbish. I mean, they have been saying that quite in different different ways. So that's that's part of it. Secondly, all this uh, this uh, sort of the culture wars stuff is is not what you expect from Sunak. But then what we're also seeing is there is no such thing as conservative values. The conservative values. My my parents were Macmillan conservatives. They you know they 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 came to think about politics in the nineteen fifties when uh, people in Scotland still voted for the conservatives, or most pe- most people did, like Macmillan government of uh, the nineteen fifties. That's all gone. I mean, conservative values seem to be what can you say to get tomorrow's headlines? What can you say to get me through next week? You say, like Sunak has said recently, that uh, he's prepared to drop income tax by 4p in the pound, providing it's not inflationary. Um, hello, <laughs> you know, giving people more. There may be good reasons to do it and bad reasons to do it, but essentially, giving people more money in their pockets to spend tends to be inflationary. Even those of us who are not uh, economic geniuses know it. So that is the lasting legacy of the Johnson years. You can say anything because nobody really thinks you mean it. You're possibly lying in the case of Johnson, uh, and the lasting legacy is sleaze and cronyism. 
Do you think this is Sunak's last throw of the dice then? I mean, he seems to have abandoned any of the Captain Sensible positioning that he attempted all those long, long days ago. I don't think any of us uh, needs to particularly apologise for our background. I don't. I don't think uh, Sunak apologising for being rich. Uh, he, he can be seen to be out of touch, but compared to whom? Compared to Johnson himself, uh, it was clearly in some ways he he touches the nerves of people by the way he talks. But an old Etonian who went, you know, a member of the Bullingdon Club, he was a man of the people. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of it's funny. So I I at least respected Sunak for being fairly cautious and being prepared to uh, tell us some hard truths. But the problem for Sunak is, over the past couple of years, very difficult times for our country, and he's been giving away money, which was the right thing to do. But when you're a chancellor giving away money, that's the easy part of your job, actually, even though those were hard times. When you come to claw it back, as he's originally suggesting he will have to do if he becomes prime minister, that's a very hard sell. And the real burden is, again, on our political system. Do we really want, yet again, for what is it now? The uh, Well, we've had the, the third time since 2016 to let 160,000 unrepresented people who are members of the Conservative Party decide who's our prime minister. And that's the way our system works. So rather like the House of Lords, it is the system which is creaking. And I don't know quite what we can do about this particular part of it, but we'll just have to suck it up for the next couple of years, unfortunately. Meanwhile, out in the real world, the summer of strikes is rumbling on. Grant Shapps floated over the weekend the idea of being made to work on your day off, citing archaic legislation, or as we call them, workers' rights, for preventing this. The next rail strikes are on the 13th, 18th and 20th of August. Gavin, do you think that the summer of discontent is moving the political dial? Is it making people shift who they support? I don't know about that. I, I certainly think, look, um, rail strikes are very inconvenient for me. I travel quite a lot um, uh, in and out of London, up to Scotland and, and, and various places. And and it is not convenient. And I don't like the fact that I can't just get on the trains. because. Uh, uh, but when I'm on trains, I talk to a lot of train workers. Uh, I talked to, to one recently, a guy who lives in Dover. And uh, he was talking to me about how much he's paid and about working conditions and so on. And these guys and women have got a point and they have a right to withdraw their labor and irritating though we may all find it uh, it seems to me that it may move the dial in the end if we move into a winter of discontent or maybe we might think wait a minute 12 years of conservative government and we've got chaos it seems to me there have been two periods where people have just become fed up because their personal lives have been deeply impacted by political decisions and political failures. The 1970s and Margaret Thatcher benefited and the 1990s when we were all fed up with sleaze and Tony Blair benefited. Now, I don't, I hope the next two years aren't really difficult, but they may very well be. And I can't think of who else to blame, but the 12 or perhaps by the time we have the next election, 14 years or so of, of conservative government. So if people want to strike, they have the right to do so. And I'm hardly, you know, Grant Shapps in one of his many identities telling us essentially that strikes are a bad thing doesn't really help, I don't think. Keir Starmer's under enormous pressure uh, from his party's left to support the strikes. Is he doing the right thing? Is he out of the woods after sacking Sam Tarry for making up policy live on TV? I think with making up policy live on TV, it was very difficult to see what Keir Starmer could do otherwise, frankly. I do think a question about which side the leader of the Labour Party should be on strikes is very, it's clearly very difficult because, as I say, strikes are very inconvenient. We have no idea what will happen. 
But we are we are now talking about a country in which we are at least eight thousand uh, doctors short. We are forty fifty thousand nurses short. We are we are seeing the cost of living crisis and so on. So I suspect it's only going to get worse. And I think uh, if Labour cannot be the voice of working people and the people in need and people who are not particularly well off, but who work hard, you know, these, quote, hardworking people that Liz Truss is all talking about, as opposed to what, you know, those who don't work particularly hard, there's not very many British people who are in that category, frankly. So Labour, it seems to me, has got a tricky, got a tricky balancing act here. But I don't think, however inconvenient some of these strikes are, I think British people will recognise that if you are losing, if your standard of living is declining and declining considerably, what else are you going to do if you're in a job? What else can you do? We can't all be members of a family of billionaires. So um, I suspect we're going to have a very rough winter. Finally, before we move on, the increasingly frightening climate situation has overshadowed the whole summer. In the US, wildfires are exploding in California and Montana. And in the UK, we're on the verge of drought. Gavin, what's it going to take to move this beyond silly stories about, you know, oh no, hosepipe ban, how am I going to wash my Vauxhall Corsa three times a week? Yeah, I live near a green, which is brown, like most greens in the, in, in the southeast of England. And we are, as we all know, we are an island surrounded by water. And for some reason, we do have water shortages. Not only that, we do have water companies that sometimes behave abysmally. They charge us quite a lot of money and they pump a lot of effluent, I'll say politely, into, into our river systems. Worse than that, trying to get them to fix leaking pipes. I was looking up some of the statistics. For example, we have billions of litres of water that leak out of leaking pipes that have not yet been fixed by water companies because they're too old. In my house in particular, I had a row with them a couple of years ago because we still had lead pipes coming into this house and they finally they finally fixed it. Um, there's a village uh, in, in Kent near, near Ashford, which was almost a week, Chalock, uh, almost a week without water. If you have water meters, it doesn't do everything but at least it means that you pay for what you use. And uh, again, according to the statistics, those who have water meters use about 33 litres a day less than the average. So water companies need to put in water meters, and we also need to, to make sure that the enormous profits that some of them make go to making our rivers cleaner. If we started to do that and thought of our water strategy, maybe we would live up to the reputation of James Lovelock, the, the wonderful man who, who who died recently he's the he's the man who who talked about gaia talking about human life shapes the environment rather than the other way around now you can argue about that but he's the sort of father of the green movement and he, he he died last week we really need to think about how to solve our water problem in this island which is actually quite wet we do get quite a lot of rain the fact that we have got a drought and hosepipe bands on your Vauxhall Corsa aren't going to fix it I just want to go back and think about the football after that. Cheers a lot. yourself back up again. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you, the best part. Just one last thing on the football. I was so glad that Lena McGall's goal for Germany uh, didn't send it to penalties because I'm from McGall near Liverpool, and if she'd won it for them, we'd have to change the name of the town. 
we'd be, you know, national enemies. So I'm very glad that that all worked out that way. Gavin, thank you for getting up early to uh, discuss this all this stuff with us. Thank you very much. It was, it, well, the football was fun. The rest of it, unfortunately, is a bit serious. But here we are. <laughs> the rest of it, business as usual. Yeah. yeah. Listeners, thanks for listening. Don't forget to do that survey. The link is in the show notes. It's on our social media too. And if you want to help us a little further, of course, you can keep us going by backing us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll get early episodes without ads. You'll get merchandise. You'll get much more. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out about it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.